Welcome to the Enliven Beverage Deal Podcast, where we're all about saving and making you money by taking both the guesswork and the legwork out of your beverage partnership and by leveling the playing field when it comes to negotiating your beverage contracts. I'm your host, Tim Harms. We've got a great show for you today. Stay tuned. Well, everyone, I'm uh, excited for this sh- show today. We have Dan Kelly on for a conversation about negotiation. Uh, Dan has a, just a fascinating background. I won't get into it too much. I'll let him share. He started his career in the FBI, and now he helps companies worldwide, I believe, negotiate with huge IT companies. So we're really excited to have Dan on. Dan, welcome. Hey, Tim. Thank you very much. So I I started your resume and sharing your story (laughs) a little bit, but uh, maybe you could fill in the gaps and and help us uh, understand kind of what you do. Sure. I'm talking to you uh, actually from my home office in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was born and raised kind of a Midwest kid, if you will. But then parents became snowbirds, figured out I hated the winters here, went to college in Denver, got recruited out of college into the FBI. Um, and that's how it all kind of started. I always had an interest in kind of the criminal justice field, but never quite knew what I wanted to do with it. Was was plucked out out of college uh, early. I had to take a year off, go through some uh, some training and, and some travel there. And then you know I spent about five years in the FBI, but I explained it to people this way. I, I loved the FBI. I hated working for the government. <laughs> I mean, that's two very distinct statements intended to be distinct. Right? <laughs> like, I love the Bureau. I love all the friends that I made. Still in very close contact with them today for, for many reasons. But this whole concept of a time and grade versus a performance-based mm-hmm. uh, compensation structure, it was just like, what the hell is this? Right? It's just <laughs> like this GS schedule. Like, no way. No, thank you. I'm out. So then I hopped into the private sector, you know, worked for like really large companies like Cargill. Not many people have heard of Cargill, but it's the largest privately held company in the world. If you took out the Saudi oil companies, it's actually based here in Minnesota and um, hopped into different industries, specialized really in the strategic sourcing space. I got some good guidance uh, once I realized that I wasn't going to be a lifelong government employee uh, from people that have left prior to me that uh, the procurement field was very good for what I was doing based on my uh, specialty in, in IT and negotiating complex situations. Uh, and so I hopped into that in private sector. And and then, Tim, honestly, what I figured out is I, I just didn't like being an employee. <laughs> and, so, and so I was like, maybe I should try this consulting thing. Like, I just didn't like this concept of, <laughs> of a boss. Uh, and it's probably a multifaceted problem, uh, probably starts with me. But I, I then I started becoming a consultant. And I, I kind of long story short, again, I started this company called The Negotiator Guru. And I learned through some some feedback and some experience that I was you know, personally a very good individual contributor uh, to this whole negotiation process. And then, uh, quite frankly, we've developed a business around that. And, and now we have a team of about 36 people wow. spread around the globe. We're uh, the worldwide leader negotiating in Salesforce deals is kind of how the market knows us. We do more than just that, but that's that's uh, how we've tripled down over the years. Wow. So my theory is you are still working for the FBI. You're an undercover agent, and this is just your cover. Is that right? I have no comment on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> no, so you are uh, you're helping companies of all shapes and sizes, from what I understand, correct? Negotiate these I- huge IT contracts. So that's what you're doing right now? 
Yeah, yeah. Our our typical client size is essentially five billion annual revenue and higher. And it's just economies of scale, right? Generally speaking, th- these companies will be spending a million dollars plus per year in in that. And so we we leverage uh, multiple different techniques and strategies. One of the the, the primary foundational tenets of everything that we do is is this concept of outcomes-based negotiation. Yeah, I, I love that. I see that uh, on your website, your resources, you write books about it and have a lot of articles for free. What is outcomes-based negotiation, just for our listeners? It is a progressive strategic sourcing strategy, if you will. What it means is when you have a party that is a supplier to your organization, right, and you have uh, a team of employees and suppliers, et cetera, it's aiming towards a common vision and a common goal. Uh, this is generally pretty simple when you have a team of you know, 15, 20 employees, et cetera. Everyone understands what the North Star looks like, right? right? It's very different when you're dealing with multinational enterprises of 10,000 plus employees uh, with dealing with suppliers in which they're negotiating with, right? In, in our case, it's IT suppliers that also uh, has 10,000 plus employees. The bottom line is, what is the objective you're trying to achieve uh, holistically? And how mm-hmm. do you align your resources, not just in a KPI perform, you know, format, the old school procurement, let's call it, old school mm-hmm. negotiation is, you'll, I want a rate reduction of 100 to 90, and that's it. We don't really care about how you do it or where we're trying to go. It's simply, I just want cost. Outcomes-based negotiation is all about focusing on what the intended outcome is for both organizations. One of the primary reasons why there's tension between mm-hmm. the supplier and the, the client is there is a lack of understanding on both parties of where each other is trying to go, right? There's lack of common goals. And uh, if you want to get really really in the weeds and really tactical about how you can truly make a strategic supplier relationship, you can have a thing called open book costing, where you literally just share your margins with each other and say, what, what, what are you doing? How, how do we help each other grow? Right. right. That's kind of the, the most extreme. Uh, you don't need to go that extreme with most supplier relationships. But the whole objective is instead of just focusing on taking cost out of a supplier relationship and also uh, without trying to simply just rate your suppliers based on this KPI performance Mm -hmm. matrix, right? Instead, focus on what good looks like for your company, the client, and share that with your suppliers at the beginning of every negotiation so that that acts as the foundation and the bedrock in which you're negotiating from. It automatically neutralizes this conversation of price, conversation of people, and product. It always, it all of a sudden will focus it on what are you actually trying to achieve as a company and what supplier is going to bring me to that intended outcome Hmm. in the fastest possible way. Hmm. When you, the client present that question to your prospective suppliers, or maybe even your current suppliers, and you're trying to renegotiate a deal, it totally neutralizes this fear factor of I've got our client just going to ask me for another 20% cost reduction, right? How do I weasel my way out of that one? Right? <laughs> do you find when you lay the goal in front of the suppliers, I mean, at the end of the process, you're in the business of helping 
companies cut costs and become more efficient and, and get outcomes. But you find you actually get to that point of cutting costs uh, even if you don't start there, and, and that's not the focus of the organization. I'm assuming that's true, and if, if that's true, why does it in there? there? There's a couple key reasons for it. Um, one is whenever you're dealing with a salesperson and whenever you're dealing with a procurement person, or I'm just going to call it procurement in general. It could be a business person that owns the budget, right? Someone basically that's trying to get the lowest cost possible mm-hmm. and someone's trying to get the highest cost possible. Right. Mm-hmm. Automatically, you're at ends. <laughs> you're, you're just right. you're, you're coming at it in completely different viewpoints. Honestly, the IT software business, which is where we focus, has made this problem amplified times a thousand. OK, it's made it even worse. OK, mm-hmm. so the point being is both parties automatically are skeptical of each other. Right. And they automatically don't trust each other before they even introduce themselves as their first name. Wow. And that is a psychological human reaction that cannot be changed purely based on how we interact as humans and on, the others, on each side of the table. This whole concept of which side of the table you're on, that, that in itself is a problem because it's basically this barrier between the two parties and we're going to fight each other until – we figure out who's the most bloody and who wins, right? <laughs> well, this whole concept of win-lose negotiation, everyone's had negotiation training, right? Everyone understands this concept of win-win, right? Mm-hmm. Point being is outcomes negotiation is quite frankly the progressive uh, idea of this win-win. And automatically when you change the subject at the beginning of the conversation from price to outcome, you, the lead negotiator, already have the upper hand because you've taken the I'm just going to speak for, on behalf of the client for now, right? Yeah. You've taken the wind out of the sales, quite frankly, out of the sales playbook uh, because what less than 1% of their conversations are about outcomes. It's all usually about price, right? And so not only do you now control the conversation, but even more importantly, you're actually empowering your salesperson to think differently and it's actually refreshing for the salespeople to think that way versus simply just having a price conversation, which most good salespeople, that's honestly the last thing they want to talk about. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting because you're kind of, you're reframing the conversation at the beginning as, as you put it, if I understand you correctly, you're in control, but you're also setting the, the grounds of the discussion on the the features, the outcomes that their product is supposed to solve. So it's supposed to be their sweet spot. So I assume by framing it this way, you're automatically placing them in a place where they feel like, oh gosh, I got to deliver now. This is what I'm tell- I'm saying I'm, my product is supposed to be doing in the marketplace. And, and ironically, you figure out very quickly whether or not they even know what the hell their product does. <laughs> <laughs> Which oftentimes in the software space is not necessarily the case. You talk about Oracle, Salesforce, Microsoft, those big IT firms. I mean, our clients obviously negotiate with Coke, Dr. Pepper, PepsiCo, you know, billion dollar companies. What makes negotiating with these big billion dollar companies different than your average run-of-the-mill negotiation with, um, you know, maybe smaller vendors or, or average, you know, your, your, your office supplies vendors. What makes these different and how do you help your uh, clients navigate the negotiation process? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I'm just going to speak on behalf of the business. So on behalf of the business, aka the, the client that's purchasing the product from Pepsi or, or Coke, et cetera, right? Most people have heard this statement, and I have to say it again because uh, it needs to be repeated because people still get this wrong every single time. Even advanced uh, business people with, let's call it a lot of negotiation experience, whatever that might look like. 80% of negotiation is purely preparations. Uh, the the reason I bring that up is you are automatically doing yourself a disservice if you're allowing a supplier to learn more about your organization, your organization's needs, than you know yourself. Wow. When you're dealing with the big boys, we call it, right? They empower uh, and pay and employ many levels of individuals that are all under the guise of an account management team or a customer success team and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> they are intended to be intelligence agents, quite frankly, um, to gain as much knowledge about your company as possible. And that's not always in a malicious way. I don't want to say that, right? It's intended, quite frankly, to embed themselves so deeply in your business that the change cost of getting out is, is extreme. And that's <laughs> by design. Uh, again, not always in a malicious way, uh, but but that, that's the facts. Sure. So what your listeners should remember is they likely have an army of three to five people, maybe 15 people, depending on what type of client we're talking about here, already in your company that are literally paid and compensated to find additional opportunities to grow their business inside yours. Mm-hmm. So – before you even talk to the team, the supplier, please at least circle the wagons internally and create what we call a roadmap of how you view that relationship looking in the next three to five years. Do that at the bare minimum. And this is going to look a little different depending on what context we're talking about, right? But in specifically in the beverage deals, figure out your volume consumption over the next three to five years before they do. Because all <laughs> of a sudden, if you don't, you're going to be walking into that first meeting and they're going to tell you what you know. And you're just going to be playing catch up. And now all of a sudden, they're in control of the narrative. Mm-hmm. So again, this is not this is not even negotiation tactics. This is just – a lot of this is just common sense. Figure out what you need before they do or – at the same time as they do. So you guys at least are working on the same information. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So you're just talking about getting everyone that on your organization that's going to be involved in the process, either directly or indirectly, and getting on the same page, understanding what your outcomes are, understanding what the data is, uh, and what your goal is for the relationship. What you're saying is, is exactly right. Uh, the beverage companies are trained to have one conversation with the CEO, one with the CFO, one with the marketing person, and that one with the ops person at the restaurant, you know, it's a divide and conquer strategy. So you're saying before that even begins, uh, make sure everyone's reading from the same playbook. That's right. Well, develop your own develop your own playbook first, um, and then uh, be prepared to speak from one voice, if you will. Do you find it's beneficial to have a single point of negotiation contact at yes. your clients? Um, yes, it is. Why yes. is that? Are you speaking on behalf of uh, us as a advisor, or you mean between a supplier and a business? Between a supplier and a business, from the supplier standpoint, or it, sorry, it, from the business's standpoint. From the business, yeah, it still is. It still is because you can 
have a coordinated approach to your communication strategy uh, inside and out. And it always is more efficient when you're dealing with a single point of contact um, inside of a company. The reason for that is, is that person acts as a quarterback. It can be nothing more than an orchestrator, but they act as a quarterback. And in your large organizations, generally speaking, that's someone in a procurement type of role. How do you best use the executive that the salesperson is is trained to go after? How do you best use the CEO or the chief marketing officer? Or I, I don't know what it would be in your business, the CIO. We use how do you, a lot, yeah. Yeah, how do you bring that in? What's the best role that they can play in a negotiation process, typically? You know what? I made a mistake early on in my career when I entered into the private sector and I made it multiple times. And let me share with you what it was. And I'm, I'm the first to admit it. I used to tell the C-suite to shut up, <laughs> to, not, <laughs> to not say anything, <laughs> keep your mouth shut. Right. That's why you were unemployable, right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yes, you got it. Now you're getting it. Yeah. Uh, I, I learned, honestly, very quickly <laughs> that that is not very easy for most C-level people. That's not what they're trained to do. They're trained to talk through things, actually mitigate risks, make clients happy, blah, blah, blah. The point being is uh, how do you use them? It's a great question. You use them to your advantage. Most C-level people want to be part of the negotiation. They want to help. They want to be involved. And depending on the personality type, right? Uh, they want to be more involved than others. You need to reserve that executive access until you have something to talk about that's worthwhile uh, between the business and the supplier. Speaking it a little differently, don't allow access to executives immediately day one of any negotiation. This can even be important for strategic negotiations and strategic suppliers that there is already an executive to an executive contact between mm -hmm. business and supplier. It's important to cut those off just temporarily um, and to allow the project teams to hash through about 80% of the nonsense before the executives get in. That, that does two things. One, it actually makes your executives happy because they realize that they're not getting involved in the minutiae. Uh, which obviously they feel a degree of self-worth at a human level, which a lot of the C-suite individuals, um, dare I say, are a little bored, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. um, they actually miss the action right? right? that that happens. At the, so honestly, a lot of them are thirsty to get back into it, and they're just looking for a little bit of an excuse. Um, and so you've got to leverage that to your ability, you know, leverage it. But don't let them get involved day one, because that means one, you're diminishing the authority of your project team. Mm -hmm. Two, you're diminishing the authority of the executive and the how decisions are made. And three, you're going to actually prolong your timeline by bringing in executives too early versus at the end. The intent of an executive to get something over the finish line at the end of the day. And that allows everybody to be happy because you've escalated accordingly in both companies. Yeah. Well, I mean, we started this conversation just talking about outcomes-based negotiation, uh, reframing the dialogue from the very beginning. Can you maybe paint a picture for a person listening, what that actually translates to in real life at the end of the day? What are some of the terms? What are some of the resulting agreements that are able to be brokered? And I, I know these will 
change in every instance. But just so we can get a visual, what does that mean? So after you get your roadmap created internally, after you circle the weighings internally, figure out what you're trying to do as a business versus wasting the supplier's time before you even know what the hell you're trying to do, right? Assuming that's been done, right? what you need to do is bring your team with the supplier team and have a co-creation session. Almost think of it as a design thinking type workshop. You know, design thinking is a whole concept of creating lots of different ideas and iterating on those ideas, creating prototypes very quickly, all with the intent of what is the North Star? What's the mission statement that we're trying to achieve? So basically, immediately, when you talk to a supplier, say, stop with the pricing discussion, stop all that, stop it, just stop, right? Write on a whiteboard, virtual or physical, usually virtual our days now. <laughs> Uh, right on a whiteboard, what are we trying to achieve here? What does good look like for both parties? And what I, what I say tactically, what that is, is actually have both parties, so you as the client and the supplier, literally together write out your interests and literally just be transparent as possible. Price can be one of your interests. It's fine. But the point being is it's not all of them. It's not the yeah. whole interest, right? Write out your interests, get it out on the table, and I'll tell you what, the minute you do that, both parties do that, you will literally notice a shift, and there all of a sudden will be a team dynamic between business and supplier. Wow. And it automatically creates a culture uh, from two parties that were at odds with each other because they both want to talk about price to now talking about focus. And so do you ever actually tie those outcomes that come on the board into the final contract? And so pricing or rebates or whatever mechanism you want, but that's actually tied to an agreed upon outcome metric. And you know what? It's easy. It's easy once you get to the contracting phase, because you know why? Mm -hmm. You've done all the work beforehand, Mm -hmm. right? So, so often these things get, and we get involved with clients all the time with this, this happens and it's good intentions, but so often people get the 19th hour and they start throwing contracts around to each other. And they're just as like, well, I didn't agree to this. It doesn't look right. Blah, blah, blah. And you've got the six months of scope creep, which is great for the run of the mill, big four consulting firms that want to charge by the hour, you know? Um, but the, it's not great for when you actually want to be productive. <laughs> and so, the point being is, uh, yes, you identify specifically, you know, the easiest for, thing for me to probably talk about with your audience is milestones. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, one of the oldest contracting techniques in the book, um, but attaching outcomes to milestones. Mm-hmm. So um, it could be either an efficiency gain. It could be a sales gain. It could be operational anything of, you know, your focus, um, that's what, and the bottom line is it has to naturally incentivize the supplier Mm. to perform their best. And if that's the case, they're going to be compensated accordingly. And compensation doesn't just come in the form of money. Mm. It comes in the form of PR as well. And so, Mm. yeah, let me just, if you don't mind, let me, Please kind of finish my thought on that because one of our secret sauce elements here is the development of what we call a white paper, a joint white paper. 
And I don't care if you're a small business or if you're an enterprise organization like a Microsoft, which you've seen some stuff in the news lately about how Microsoft is now coming onto this idea. You know, you have to identify what your objectives are. If you identify the objectives, then figure out how the milestones can enable those objectives and incentivize supplier. In addition to the cash, this whole concept of a white paper is wonderful because if those objectives are met for both parties, by the way, it's not just a supplier servicing the business. It's actually the business servicing the supplier as well. The business has to do their part to enable a good relationship. But the white paper concept is all about uh, external credibility to a business relationship that was outcomes-based. And uh, a company like Coke could use it with uh, one of their clients and say, listen to the relationship that we started with, the journey we've been on, and where we ended up, and how it's benefited both companies. And honestly, that's good for both companies. Absolutely. That's not just good for the supplier, Coke. That's good for the the client too, because all of a sudden you, the client, can use this white paper and say, "Hey, look, hey, look, uh, other supplier, look at what we've done with this. We want to be the client of choice for you." Hmm. There's a million uh, ways to apply this to our business that I'm thinking about. I mean, restaurants. I mean, of course, they want a lower price on on their soda, you know, their syrup. But what they really want is more customers in the door purchasing more beverages to grow attachment or incidence rate, whatever term you want to use, up. And that benefits the beverage supplier and it benefits the restaurant, right? Um, whereas an airport may want uh, to improve the the, the, the the passenger's journey and to create these really exciting, engaging, clean spaces at the airport. And if that's identified at the beginning as the outcome and Pepsi or Coke or Dr. Pepper are able to have a vision in their head of a story, a commercial uh, white paper, uh, a social media campaign around something that they're jointly able to create together. I mean, there is value there. And uh, it's not just about beating up the vendor for price. It's about creating value that wasn't there before. It's yeah, I love it. I love it. I mean, like with airports, it's end user experience, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've, I'm, I've been very closely tied to the Minneapolis airport, right? Uh, sit on one of the committees, part of the board, and uh, we talk about end user experience all the time. Because most people, the thing with airports, and I know we don't, we don't want to get into <laughs> this, but most people want to get the hell out of an airport. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. how, do you make, like, how do you make the journey enjoyable <laughs> when a lot of people just want to get the hell out? Right. And it's all about shifting the paradigm mm-hmm. on that, of actually making it actually quite a cool experience before and after a flight. Right. So what role in your negotiations, you know, obviously every time, um, uh, well, I assume for a lot of your projects, um, there are multiple competitors in this space, in the solution space. What role uh, is, um, do you see in pitting different suppliers against each other? Do you, as you're doing, going through these visioning sessions with suppliers, do you let them know what other conversations have been? Do you keep that siloed? How do the two? How do you bring that 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 fear element um, into the negotiation in a way that's productive? We do it immediately. Is is the answer? You you don't want to um, play games, smoke and mirrors, if you will. Um, and the reason for that is is because you automatically set a tone um, of 
quite frankly, disrespect and dishonesty if you've not been clear with all the parties uh, of mm -hmm. what's actually happening. However, what you should do is say that everyone's marching to the same drummer. You've got the same objectives between perspective A and perspective B, and mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out how we create the best journey to the same mm -hmm. outcome. And whoever creates the best journey wins, period. That's great. That's great. More of a phil philosophical question. Um, when you teach people how to negotiate, are you primarily focusing on the people skills, the soft skills, or are you really honing in on, on more of the hard skills, the technical aspects of the service that they're negotiating? I mean, earlier you said negotiation is 80% preparation. What, what should people be focusing on? Is it the, the people skills or is it really the, the nitty gritty aspect of the, the, the service that they're trying to negotiate for? Or is it both? I hate the cop-out answer. It's both. But, but, yeah. but the, the priority is on the emotional intelligence skills, to answer your question directly. Mm -hmm. So the, the priority is really on the people skills first. Um, if you don't have that down, what's the point of talking about the, the tactics? That's especially difficult in certain industries. Um, I'll give you an example. The manufacturing industry honestly really struggles with this. Um, we have a lot of manufacturing clients. Uh, we've had several bring me in for training um, over the years. And honestly, they really struggle with this um, because there's such a numbers-driven culture. They don't actually give a damn oftentimes <laughs> about having a relationship with anyone. If you can't do it, I got six other suppliers that can. So if you make your time or don't, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a different way to attack it and it takes some change management on both sides um, with mm -hmm. certain industries but the our key focus is identifying and leveraging and developing emotional intelligence skills which I always say is a um, a a fancy way of saying negotiation skills, honestly. And uh, I, I assume you're of the mindset that they, those can be learned over time, and and uh, you're not. It's not just something you're born with. They can be learned, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, that's exactly right. It, um, it, these same skills are learned in multiple different industries as well. I mean, take if you just if I reflect on my personal experience real quick, I, I you know. I was not planning to do this <laughs> when I was like, this was not, this was not the plan. Right. Um, turns out that I found something I love and that's great. I think most people share that same story. Right. If you talk about things like from a law enforcement background to an intelligence community, to a public service, to a private sector negotiating beverage deals, the same elements are applied no matter whether you're talking about a hostage negotiation to that of a negotiating a beverage deal. Mm -hmm. the, the, the topic is very different, but the overall behavior and approach and journey that you need to take a human through is quite frankly, almost identical. Yeah. That's, that's so well said. We're all human and that's we wanted right. to be treated about like humans. And yeah. uh, there's a, something that happens. I love that idea of sitting shoulder to shoulder uh, with someone staring at a big problem. How do we solve this problem together? Uh, and not just uh, a face-to-face -face trying to fight to see who can win <laughs> a battle. Uh, I, I love the way that you frame that. Well, this has been a fantastic 
conversation. Thanks for sharing so much knowledge uh, with our listeners and with me. I've learned a lot in this. Um, just can you take a minute to give a plug uh, for the Negotiator Guru and uh, what you do for, in particular, into the in the IT space? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. We. Um, so I'm the founder and a senior partner at the Negotiator Guru. Um, we specialize in negotiating IT contracts for large enterprise companies. Um, and our top four are Salesforce, Microsoft, Oracle, and Workday. We have some of our secret sauce, we call it, is this thing called right sizing and right pricing. So not only do we audit to validate you are paying for products that you actually need, but you're paying the right price for those products uh, in accordance to your industry and your annual contract value and a few other levers. So uh, we're really good at it. Uh, we only accept clients that we know we can drive an impact. It's the reason we actually turn away more clients than we accept. Uh, typically, we save clients between 20 to 50% in cash uh, that can be re- reinvested in other areas of the business. 20 to 50% in Salesforce, Microsoft, Oracle, and Workday products. And um, just to be clear, is that f- so if, if uh, someone's listening, they know they're a Salesforce customer, do they have to switch away from Salesforce? So, no, it's an excellent question. You do not need to switch suppliers. Uh, what we do is we ensure that you're not over-licensed. So you don't actually pay for licenses you're not using. So AKA, in IT speak, capability you're not using, right? Um, and so you don't lose any business functionality uh, in both uh, the uh, the platform you use as well as the uh, supplier. You don't change suppliers either. So essentially, we do an internal audit. And then the right pricing is what a lot of people come to us for. It's purely price benchmarking that's localized to you. It's not what a Gartner would tell you is the best class price, best in class price. That's all nonsense because that stuff is shot down immediately by your salespeople because they're taught how to shoot that stuff down. doesn't apply to you for XYZ. So that's... Uh, that's my answer. No, you don't need to change suppliers. <laughs> Only probably one out of 30 clients we have changes suppliers at any given time. Awesome. So if you're listening, uh, Dan is the expert in this space. Uh, give him a call. How can they find you? They can send me a direct email uh, and uh, either myself or the team will pick it up. My email is dan at the negotiator.guru. So G-U-R-U. Or you can go to the negotiator.guru uh, on the web and uh, and contact us there. So yeah, it's it's been a great conversation, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Thanks everyone for listening in. Hope you found that informative. If you have a burning question about your beverage negotiation or partnership, we'd love to hear from you and answer it on this podcast. Reach out to us by emailing podcast at enlivenpartnership.com. And hey, before we sign off, I want to remind you that you can take both the guesswork and the legwork out of your beverage partnership. You can level the playing field in your beverage negotiations, and you can save or make your company millions through a new or an improved beverage agreement. The first step is a free beverage opportunity analysis which will tell you just how much you can save or you can make. Sign up for your free beverage opportunity analysis at enlivenpartnership.com. 
and by clicking free savings estimate. On behalf of everyone here at Enliven, thanks for listening in.